We apologise to the listener of this tape. There is a hum in the background. This is on the master recording. To Matthew's Gospel in the 13th chapter. I want to read once again part of this chapter. From verse 24. I'm going to not read the parable of the sower. I think most of you know it pretty well. Another parable set he before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that sowed good seed in the field, in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the blades sprang up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. And the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? Whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And the servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he saith, Nay, lest haply while ye gather up the tears, ye root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather up first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable said he before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is less than all seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs, becometh a tree, so that the birds of the heaven come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things spake Jesus in parables unto the multitudes. And without a parable spake he nothing unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken to the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from the foundation of the world. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Explain unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are angels. As therefore the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling, and them that do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He that hath ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid. And in his joy 
He goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a merchant seeking goodly pearls, and having found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was filled, they drew up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but the bad they cast away. So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the righteous and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Have ye understood all these things? They said unto him, Yea. And he said unto them, Therefore, every scribe who hath been made a disciple to the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder who bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. One further word of prayer. Lord, we just want to bow here in your presence. All we want to do is recognize that without you, we can do nothing. But you have provided us with an anointing. And Lord, you can, through that anointing, renew our mind and renew our bodies. You can, through that anointing, open my mouth so that I can speak your word. And through that anointing, you can give us that kind of hearing that we hear your voice and understand. Lord, then we commit this time into your hands with thanksgiving in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's a bit too late now to say that the theme of this uh, conference is the King is coming. I think you all know that. Um, and my uh, responsibility has been, ha ha have been the parables in Matthew uh, 13. And uh, in the times that I have been responsible for, we have considered um, the phrases that uh, have appeared in this 13th chapter, the word of the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom, and the sons of the kingdom. Now tonight, and in a way that I think really does sum up all that we've said, I want to consider the phrase that is in verse 52 of Matthew chapter 13, every scribe who hath been made a disciple to the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder who bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. A disciple to the kingdom of heaven. The very phrase to me is suggestive. I don't know how it's rendered in the old authorized version. Um, it's a marvelous version, but it's not always so accurate. Uh, you will notice when I talked about sons of the kingdom that you all have children of the kingdom. And um, uh, children, they, they translated the word interchangeably, sometimes sons, sometimes children, quite arbitrarily in the old uh, King James uh, version. Uh, 
Now, uh, I think it's a very interesting rendering, this literal one that I have here, a disciple to the kingdom of heaven. What a suggestive phrase. How, uh, how uh, suggestively it's put. It's as if the Lord has phrased this marvelous little phrase in a, in a way that should make us stop for a moment. Why didn't he say uh, disciples of the kingdom of heaven? Why did he say disciples to the kingdom of heaven? It's almost as, as if he's saying you are a, a disciple to something that's coming. You're not only a disciple of something that's in existence, but you're being prepared for something that is going to have its public manifestation in a day that is to come. Everything that the, that the Lord is doing to a, a scribe who's been made a disciple is in the light of that kingdom, is in the light of the coming of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, to me, this phrase suggests training in the light of the coming kingdom, education in the light of the coming kingdom, instruction in the things of God and in the ways of God in the light of the coming kingdom, discipling for the kingdom that is coming. Consider for a moment this word kingdom. When, um, of course I don't know how you over here understand it um, in uh, the United States. I imagine you consider the word kingdom as something somewhat antique. But um, the word kingdom generally, for those of us who've been brought up in a kingdom, uh, 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 conjures up the idea of territory. Actually, it, it conjures up the idea not merely of a throne and someone who reigns on that throne, but, but it conjures up a, a territory. For instance, the official name of, uh, of Britain um, that is uh, England, Wales, uh, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That is its official term. And the moment you think of a kingdom, you think of those isles. Now, I know Americans are not very good on geography. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember years ago when I was in the garden tomb and uh, someone came in and the lady on the other side was dealing, who was in the book room, was dealing with these tourists and this American lady said in a very southern uh, drawl, which I can't copy, um, <laughs> she, said, um, she said, oh, you do speak good English. And this lady said, well, I should. I come from New Zealand. New Zealand, she said. That's somewhere near Holland, isn't it? <laughs> now, I know that Americans are not always too good on geography, but when you think of the kingdom, 
When you think of the kingdom, you ought to, many people will have a kind of picture of the British Isles, you see, if you're thinking of the United Kingdom, or if you're thinking of the Danish Kingdom, or, or the Dutch Kingdom, or, 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 or so on and so forth. You have a picture of the sort of geography of that, uh, of that uh, uh, country. But the Greek actually doesn't quite mean that. It does, we can't put into English exactly what this Greek word means because it has at one and the same time two ideas. It has both the throne and the reign and the territory. That's why I know I'm quoting him a lot these days, but that's why dear old Mr. Brother Sparks used to say that he liked the word kingship. Now, when I first heard this, it transformed my whole ideas. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingship. I thought that transformed it for me because suddenly I got on and the idea is not just territory to reign over. This idea that Christians have draped on golden thrones, sort of lazily waving hands to angels to bring them coffee or tea, depending on your origin, um, or Coca-Cola. Um, I mean, this kind of, of sort of uh, blasé idea that people have of what it means to Terrain. No, it suddenly transformed it for me that this, this kingdom into which you and I have been born, this kingdom to which we are being discipled, this kingdom that uh, you and I are uh, made by the grace of God candidates for, is a matter of kingship. Therefore, if it's kingship, one immediately begins to understand the necessity of training. You have to be trained for kingship. You have to be educated for kingship. Some people might ask, well, why do we need to be trained for the kingdom? We're going to be ruled over, aren't we? I mean, the Lord Jesus is going to do all the ruling and the reigning. But if you get the idea of kingship and not just territory, of course, it includes that idea of territory. Because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in the end. The whole is called the kingdom of God. The earth and its fullness, the world and they that dwell therein, is actually the kingdom of our, of our Lord. And there's a marvelous statement at the end of the seventh trumpet that says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. Well, now, my dear friends, when you think of it as kingship, I think that puts a slightly different complex on it. Every scribe that's been made a disciple to the kingship of heaven is like a householder. Now, I spoke uh, yesterday morning about the sons of the kingdom. And... Um, I spoke of the, the uh, I hope, something that I trust is obvious, that you can be a baby and you can be a male child. In that sense, you are a son, but you cannot ever administer your father's business. And you cannot supervise your parents' property. You are a baby, 
you've got a genetic history in your uh, flesh and blood. You have uh, a name that has been given to you. You belong to your parents. You're born of your parents. But you have got to grow. You have got to know discipline. You have got to be educated. You have to have a character that has to be developed before you can take over the family business, before you can inherit uh, what is yours in a way that will not fritter it away. Now, once we begin to see that, I believe so much falls into place. Um, and that is why uh, it is so important, in my estimation, to mm, differentiate between that Greek word that is always and rightly translated children and the other Greek word that should be uh, rightly translated sons. Because again and again, not in every instance, but again and again, Whenever the word of God is speaking about sons, bringing many sons to glory, I will, to him that overcomes, he shall inherit all these things, I will be his God and he shall be my son. The idea is of someone who's grown up from babyhood through spiritual childhood into maturity and has become a son of his father, able to sit on the throne able to share in the government um, of God, able to um, administer the will of God in the ages to come. Now, if you, t you look back to Romans chapter 8, you see you had this whole thing because, in a sense, what we're talking about when we talk about discipling is really just this whole matter from another angle. In Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse uh, 14, we read this. Now listen carefully. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. For ye received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but ye received the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Listen, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Now you've got the whole thing in these few verses. <laughs> Whether we take the view that this adoption is the Gentile form of adoption, which means a child of somebody of another parentage is adopted um, uh, artificially, if you like, and becomes a legal child, um, of those who are actually not his parent. I said to you yesterday, Mr. Sparks didn't like this. Uh, he said that this was something he felt was foreign uh, to the New Testament. Um, and he preferred 
what he felt to be an illustration, a picture borrowed from our Jewish custom that a child, a son is circumcised on the eighth day. That's when he gets his brit milah. That is the covenant of circumcision. But when he is 13 years of age, he has his bar mitzvah. He becomes a son of the law, a son of the commandment. And then he's recognized as a, a young man with responsibility in the house of Israel. Now, um, he believed this spirit of adoption was uh, uh, that. And he used to like the um, translation, um, the spirit of placing as such. Um, well, maybe a little bit uh, forced. I don't know. But all I know is this. What he felt after and got himself into so much controversy, I have no doubt in my heart about the truth of it. Whether in fact adoption is the Gentile uh, uh, adoption or whether it is the Jewish bar mitzvah, the fact of the matter is that sons have to grow. And here you've got it. Listen, most of you, unless you've just been born in this last week spiritually, and most of you who've been a few years old in the Lord must surely have observed that the vast majority of Christians are not led by the Spirit. Does that mean they are not sons of God? It says here, as many as are led by the Spirit of God. They are sons of God. I know many people who are always saying the Spirit told them to do this, the Spirit told them to do that, the Spirit told them to do the other. And they go from one thing into another, into one mess into another mess. The Spirit apparently leads them into a mess and then into another mess and then into another mess and then into another mess. And, another mess. and it's always the Spirit. Such people are not led of the Spirit. But we also know people who are truly led of the Spirit. And the thing we always recognize with such is they have a maturity. They have an experience of the Lord. They have a spiritual growth. They have the development of spiritual character. They've had some kind of education. The word of the Lord has got into them. It's taken root in them. It's growing in them. You will notice this. Those who are truly led of the Lord. What a thrilling thing it is when you meet someone, a child of God, a servant of God, who has a real story through his or her life of being led by the Lord. How it encourages us. How it strengthens our faith in the Lord. How it, 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 it somehow inspires a trust in us that we also could trust God and know his leading. But these people are never wishy-washy people. They're never just merely emotional people. There's nothing wrong with emotion, but when it's only emotion, there's everything wrong with it. But when you find these people that are truly led of the Spirit of God, then there's a glory about them. Now listen to this. It says those that are led, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. They've learned to distinguish the mind of the Lord. They've lent 
They've learned to sense what the Lord is saying in them. They have learned a way through in fellowship with other brothers and sisters, not slavishly following brothers and sisters, but really checking with brothers and sisters. They have learned how to stand on their own two feet in the presence of the Lord and know the Lord for themselves. And at the same time, uh, operate within real fellowship with other brethren. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. They've grown up. They're, they're coming to maturity. They're coming to full growth. Uh, they, they are the sons of the kingdom. Now, he, he says, um, for you have not received a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received this spirit of adoption or this spirit of placing as sons whereby... You cry, Abba, Father. So you're born of God. Born of the Spirit of God. And something within you leaks up. God is not just some infinite living God. But he is Abba, Father. An intimate relationship with him. And then it says here that... Uh, uh, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's born of God. And if children, then we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is what this whole matter of being sons of the kingdom is about. This is why we're being discipled to the kingdom. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We have an amazing inheritance that one day the Lord wants to lead us into not just to enjoy, but to administer. And then it says, so that we get this matter absolutely clear, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So this whole question of being discipled is a matter of discipline. And discipline, depending on the way you look at it, has a certain amount of suffering in it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's agonizing pain. It can just mean, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now, I suggest that many, especially some of the uh, uh, fellows here, it's the hardest thing in the world to have a yoke on you. And I'll tell you something else. It's much easier to have your personal yoke. But to find that you've got a double yoke. Now I'm not talking about your husbands or wives. <laughs> just a present. And it is true, it speaks about being not unequally yoked together. But in Matthew 11 and verse 29, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And you will find rest unto your soul. 
said, I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now, this is a double yoke. You see, we like to feel that if we're going to have a yoke on us, we can get, we can initiate the pace. Do you understand? If we want to be slow, we're slow, but we're getting the job done. It's okay, okay, okay. We're getting the job done. We're doing it at our own pace. We're doing it at our own pace. See, if we want to go fast, we'll go fast. If we want to go slow, we'll go slow. And if for some reason we would like to just stop and have a little munch on grass by the wayside, we'll have a little munch on the grass by the way. Don't worry, we would say to the farmer, don't worry, it'll get done. Leave it to me, trust me. I don't mind having this yoke on me, but I want to go at my own pace. And I want to sort of uh, know when I want to start, we start. And when I want to stop, we stop. And I, I'm going to determine how fast we do it. But this yoke is a double yoke. And I suggest to you, think about it for a moment. That's where suffering comes in. You see, very often we think only of suffering in terms of terrible, agonizing pain. But we don't think of suffering as, I was going to say a straitjacket, if you know what I mean. But to have a yoke on you <laughs> is not so easy. <clears throat> now, I've always been amazed at the Word of God. I suppose it was because when I was young, I never read the Word of God. So when I first discovered it, literally from the day I first discovered the Word of God, it has enthralled me all through the years. I won't say that I haven't suffered as a result of some of that which I found within the Word of God. But I've always found the end is glory. Now, I find it quite amazing that here within this book, in uh, Deut uh, Deuteronomy and chapter 22 and verse 10, it says this. Thou shalt not yoke a donkey with an ox. Now, I travel quite a bit and I often see donkeys and oxen yoked together doing the work. Why, does it, why did God say, thou shalt not yoke a donkey with an ox? Because the ox, if you know anything about these creatures, an ox is at least two foot higher than a donkey. And furthermore, a donkey, when it wants to, can go quite fast. And an ox is always slow. So what was the Lord saying? If you yoke two creatures like that, they are unequally yoked. And that means that both of them will suffer. The ox will get sores across its uh, shoulders and so will the donkey. Now, the wonderful thing is this. When the, just think for a moment. Just think. When Jesus said, take my yoke on you, you would have thought, well, 
this is how I think, so I'll forget you for a moment. Uh, this is how I think, I think to myself, could there be a more unequal yoking in the world? Think of it for a moment. Could there be a more unequal yoking? Is there anyone more great and more marvelous than the Lord Jesus? And is there anyone more hopeless than me? Now, you don't have to say anything there, but I, I mean, think of yourself. Think of yourself. And yet the Lord, in some marvelous way, says his yoke, he will be yoked with us, which means we are yoked together. How do we learn of him? We walk with him. We walk with him. We learn that we are together in this thing. We are yoked together in the service of the Lord. Now, once you begin to see this, well, this matter of suffering becomes something different. It, it's a matter of training. It's a matter of learning of the Lord. It's, it's a matter of, of discovering that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I find this quite amazing when you begin to look at, um, at the Word of God in this connection. Because uh, you, uh, you suddenly, many of us have a terrible fear of the Lord's yoke. We feel that once that yoke comes on us, we might as well forget laughter. We might as well forget joy. We might as well forget any kind of lightness. We might as well forget any thoughts of self-fulfillment. Life from the moment the Lord's yoke comes upon us is going to be miserable. It's going to be vacuous. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be a long succession of the doing everything we never wanted to do and forsaking everything we ever wanted to do. And this is what Jesus said. Listen, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am me. And lowly of heart. And you shall find rest. Unto your soul. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. It's exactly the opposite of what we think. It's exactly the opposite of what we think. We think if we take the yoke upon us, it's going to be heavy, it's going to be hard, it's going to chafe us, it's going to be all pain, all agony, it's going to be miserable emptiness. And the Lord says, if you're weary and if you're heavy laden, come to me, I can give you rest. But how do we get that rest? By taking his yoke upon us. The only way we find rest unto our souls. Now here is something very interesting. Our souls are normally the center of our disturbance. They, well, mine is. I don't know about you. 
I find that all the problem is in my soul. It gets very disturbed about things, very restless, uh, neurotic at times. It gets all sort of worked up. And it's in my soul that I have all the distrust of the Lord, not in my spirit. My spirit is, uh, is reasonably um, happy with the Lord, if you understand <laughs> what I mean. But it's my soul that is the problem. My soul's always having an argument with the Lord. My soul is always telling the Lord what he should do. I'm always, my soul is always saying, Lord, if you would give me this and this and this, I'd be happy. But the Lord said, you shall find rest unto your soul. Here we have a paradox. Only the true disciple is a person at rest. A Christian who is not a disciple is often the most miserable of all people. They are a neither nor person. They're not in the world and yet are trying to live in the world. They are not truly walking with the Lord Jesus. They're neither nor. There's nothing more miserable than a neither nor existence. The child of God is not the darkened, blind sinner who can have a seared conscience. But the child of God is someone whose conscience is awake, unfortunately. If he doesn't go the whole way with the Lord, he spends his whole time with a conscience. Every time he enjoys something in the world, he has a little conscience. And after a conference like this, he's going to have a bigger one. Think of that. Every time you're sitting in the movie house, you think, would the Lord like me? He's coming back tonight. And suddenly you think, well, I'm, it's okay what I'm watching. It's okay. <laughs> but you see, you've got a kind of conscience all the time. Everything you do, you, you have a kind of conscience. You're neither nor. I call that Weary and heavy laden. Weary, I think the Lord has beautifully described it. Weary and heavy laden. I see sometimes the dear believers coming into meetings and they're obviously weary and heavy laden. They drag themselves, they sit there. And yet the person who is a disciple, who's been discipled to the kingdom, is someone who's found rest to their soul. Now, even the Lord Jesus learned something about this in Hebrews and chapter 5 and verse uh, uh, 8. It says, and verse 9, though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became unto all them that obey him, the author of eternal salvation. Now, I don't know how this really applies to the Lord Jesus. This word perfect doesn't mean the Lord Jesus was imperfect. It is that Greek word mature, full, complete. Jesus came to maturity. He came to full growth. 
through the things which he suffered. He learned the value of obedience. He actually learned through being obedient, without sin, having never sinned, sinless. Yet through obeying his father, he learned the full value of obeying. It was a discipline. This is the way that every son that he's bringing to glory has to go. There are no exceptions. So now you begin to understand that other scripture we looked at last night in Hebrews chapter 12 and from verse 5, My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art reproved of him, for whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth. Remember, I translated that last night as child training. Whom the Lord loveth, he trains as a child and scourges every son whom he receives. There's a whole passage there. We don't have the time to look at it, but I'm sure you will. Now, if I could take this all a step further and uh, talk just a little while about being discipled for the throne, for the throne. Being discipled for the throne. You're a royal child. You are being educated, trained. Your character's being developed with the throne in view. You are being discipled in a way that the ordinary good fish in the kingdom are not. Because the Lord has a special place for you. He doesn't push us. Within our very salvation, within our very new birth, is a calling, is a destiny. That we should reign with Christ. We can either reject it, ignore it, bypass it, or commit ourselves to it. Now, there are three things I want just to dwell on, and then I want finally to, to conclude. The first thing I just want to talk about is discipling and the Word of God. Discipling and the Word of God. Or, put it another way, the Word of God and being discipled by the Lord Jesus. Every part of your training is to do with the Word of God. So the first thing we understand is this. The Word of God has to be learned. We have to learn the Word of God. That's quite different to just superficially reading, easily listening. To learn the Word of God means that we become an 
as the Lord used in the right way. Now, you see, very often in Christian circles, scribes, like the Pharisees, are blackened. And there's a lot in the Word of God about the hypocrisy of the scribes and the artificiality of the scribes. But here, at the end of these parables, Jesus uses the word scribe in exactly the way it's meant to be used. Every scribe that is made a disciple to the kingdom of heaven. Now what is a scribe? A scribe is a scholar. A scribe is a student of scripture. A serious student of the scripture. That's what a scribe is meant to be. The scribes may have, many of them, have gone very far from what they were meant to be. But they were interpreters of the law because they studied the law. They studied the word of God. They, they delved into it. They, they, they meditated on it day and night. They sought to get to the heart of what it meant. Oh, uh, it's sometimes so hard to get these things over, but I think of, in our circles, what we have to say every day. In my home, we say it every day in, uh, in Hebrew. It's in Deuteronomy 6, and this is, this is it. Listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou walkest in the way. And when thou liest down. And when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign on your hand. And they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. And thou shalt write them upon thy doorposts. The doorposts of thy house and upon thy gates. Does it mean anything to you? What the Lord was saying was this, this word that he's given us has got to be learnt, it has to be studied, it has to be meditated upon, it has to be as it were the beginning of the day and the end of the day and everything in between, it has to be your outside gates and your inside doors, it has to be on your arm and between your eyes. This word has to be on your heart, on your arm, on your, between your eyes. What was the Lord saying? Was he merely saying, as it is understood amongst my people, you nail it on the door, on the gate, on every door in your house? 
so that when you go through, you touch it and remind yourself the word of the Lord. Is that all it meant? Does it mean that phylacteries should be put upon your arm only and it's bound there with no understanding all round, round your head, between your eyes with no understanding? What does it mean? It's, it comes out of this, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. How is that to be expressed? By the word of God being in your heart and between your eyes and on your arm and on your gates and on your doors. The word of the Lord has to be learned. There's no way you can be a disciple to the kingdom of heaven unless that word of the Lord becomes for you the beginning and the end. Is it not remarkable that Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega? The first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet? As if once again he's bringing to us this whole thing, you will find the whole word of God in him. Livingly expressed in him, in his life, in his nature, in his work. Well, I mustn't stay for too long on this because I want to talk about some of the other things as well. But this word of the Lord, if you're going to be discipled to the kingdom of heaven, then this word of the Lord is to be learnt. And unless you give time for it, and if you, unless you have a heart toward God, you will never learn the word of God. The enemy will see to it that you fritter away your life until you're too old to be able to study anymore. The second thing about the discipling and the word of God is the word has to be experienced. Not just put on your doors and on your gates and learnt and meditated. It has to be experienced. That word of the Lord is an implanted word, an inborn word. It's a, an indwelling word. And we talked about that yesterday when I talked about the sons of the kingdom. But think for a moment. I gave you two examples um, uh, of people that I knew just as, uh, just as examples of how the word becomes our own. And when it becomes our own by revelation, then it's never taken away. It's yours forever. That's your word. It's become yours. It's become flesh and blood in you. I remember the first time that I ever understood that the Spirit of the Lord was in me. Oh, what a tremendous thing it was when I understood that simple word. From Romans 8, that the Spirit of the Lord was in me. Do you know, I'd read it so many times. Never been revealed to me. But in that day when I saw that, it was as if heaven opened. And I can't explain it. I cannot explain it. It was as if a great Amazon tide flooded me and swirled around me. And I've never been the same since. 
I couldn't care less if people said, oh, you've become a Pentecostal. I wasn't in a Pentecostal church. I saw something. I read it, I suppose I must have read it, I would imagine, a thousand times. I was 16. And I was saved when I was 12. And hadn't had a whole Bible till I was 13, 14. And I must have read it because I read and read and read my Bible. I devoured it once I had a Bible. And, uh, but it had never come home to me that the Spirit of the Lord was in me and upon me. It had never, ever come home. But when that was revealed to me, it came to me. I heard the word with understanding. It became mine. I shall never forget when I saw that I'd been crucified with Christ. I had done my best to Christianize myself. I put Canaanite phraseology in my lips. And, uh, and I, had, I had beaten myself into prayer. My mother said that she had a monk for a son and, and a nun for a daughter. That's how she used to describe it to other friends. I don't know what's got hold of those children of mine, she said. But I was inside the most unhappy person. It was religion. I, I was trying to live a Christian life. I was doing my best to make a saint of my old man. Have you ever done that? It's a terrible job. It's a terrible job to try and Christianize your old man or your old woman. Go, just try. You'll come to the same end I came absolute desperation and I remember that day when that word came to me I have been crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me it shone into my heart in such a way that I rose up with it I honestly can say it was like shackles fell off me as if a huge burden on my back rolled away I, I can't explain I actually thought I had not been saved I thought now I've been saved now I look back, I know I was saved four years before that. But at the time I thought, I haven't been saved. I haven't been saved. Now I'm saved. Thank God for that. I couldn't explain it to anybody. They all thought I was a bit weird. I mean, my Christian friends. I was in the Baptist church and they all thought, what's bitten him? <laughs> but you know, I... I I, I, shall, I shall never forget when I, well, I mustn't talk about myself, but, but uh, at least I can tell you what I'm saying is not secondhand. I mean, I saw this myself. I, I, remember, I remember the first time I ever saw the church. I, it was in a little word in 1 Corinthians 12. So also is Christ. Can you believe that? So also is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 12. I had read a little booklet by Mr. Sparks. Now I'd heard that he was a bit strange. Many of these Christian friends said to me, you be careful of him, he's a cultic figure. And so I really wondered very much. But anyway, I read this book and he said, so you can see the church is Christ. And I thought, 
I, I remember closing the book and putting it in my pocket. I was walking beside the River Thames. And I was reading this little book. I put it inside. I remember very clearly to this day. And I thought to myself, now I know what's wrong with that man. I thought to myself, any fool could have told if the church isn't Christ. Christ is the head. Every Christian should, all, should know that. He says the church is Christ. How can he say such a thing? And I thought to myself, my friends were right. The man is off center. You know, he's unbalanced. Must be careful. Well, the Lord has great humor. And the next morning, my reading began with 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. And then it says, as the body has many members, and all the members being many are one body, so also is Christ. And then I read it, and I looked, and I said, now, this must be a bad translation. <laughs> Because this must mean, as the body has many members, and all the members being many are one body, so also is the body of which Christ is head. So I went and looked in different versions, and I found they all were more clear than ever. They said, so is Christ. And then I was stunned, stunned. I thought, I don't understand it, Lord. Maybe that man, meaning poor Mr. Spot, maybe that man, I thought, is right. And then into my heart came a voice, not audible, but as real as an audible voice. So, your head is not Lance Lambert. Your body is not Lance Lambert. And then in a flesh, I saw it. A body is nothing if it hasn't a head. And a head is nothing if it hasn't a body. Have you ever seen a living headless body? Have you ever seen a living bodiless head? I mean, the whole idea is head and body belong to each other. In a flash, I saw it. So is Christ. And then it was like a revelation that blew my mind completely. Suddenly I saw, oh, how wonderful this salvation is. You, I am in Christ. And I've become part of Christ because I'm a member of his body I am part of the Christ I belong to him when I pray in his name I'm praying as part of his body oh it was just so wonderful now of course I don't know whether it's wonderful to you as I as I uh, as I say all I'm saying is this here is the word of God my dear friends we can read the word of God we can read these things as doctrines we can read these things as truths it doesn't mean anything I told you about that wonderful old titled lady yesterday morning. I'll tell you another story about her that always so deeply moved me. She, being a titled lady many, many years ago, was terribly ill at one point in her mind. She had really served the Lord with all her strength, but in her own energy. And she'd worn herself out, and her mind began to go. Being a titled lady in those days, it was considered to be something you never mentioned. It was very, very below thing to be mentally ill. And she had top private specialists. I mean, they said, you have to go into hospital. Oh, she said, what kind of hospital? I'm very sorry, he said. It will have to be a mental hospital. But I'm a child of God, she said. 
And he said, I'm afraid it makes no difference. Then she pled with the Lord when he went, having agreed, heal me, Lord. But the heavens were brass, and nothing happened. They came in the ambulance to take her. She was a stretcher case. They took her. And as she went into the portals of this place, for her the shame was so huge. She said to me, I said, Lord, I'm entering hell. And immediately into her heart came the word from Psalm 139. Though I make my bed in hell, even there thou art. She said it came with such a force of revelation into her spirit. You see, if she didn't know the word of God, how could the Holy Spirit have brought it to her? But because she had studied the word and learned the word, the Holy Spirit took something buried deep within her memory and shot it into her heart. Though I make my bed in hell, even there thou art. And suddenly she said, I smiled and thought, the Lord is here. And when the doctors came, they said, what's wrong with you? You're perfectly well. <laughs> and she walked out. Oh, how wonderful it is when the Lord gives you something, makes his word real to you. When it comes into you, then it's yours. Nobody can take it away. It's your word. It, it's something that's become flesh and blood. It's, it's implanted in you. It's taken root in you. It's growing in you. Don't you see how wonderful the word of God is? Well, there's one other thing I want to talk about in connection with the word before I just move on to these other things. And that is the word divide. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit. Now, I find this a very interesting thing. If you're going to be a disciple to the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to grow up to be a son of the kingdom, then this spiritual surgery has got to take place within. There has to be a division between soul and spirit. Now, some people say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Surely the soul and the spirit are synonymous. No, they're not. Have you ever noticed in those wonderful psalms, things like this? Listen carefully. Be still, my soul. Now, just wait. Who is talking to who? Be still, my soul. So is the brain talking to the soul? Who is talking to who? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his whole, praise his holy name. Who's talking to who? Do you remember the psalm? 131 verse 2. I've quieted my soul like a weaned child. <laughs> you rocked your soul to sleep. Who's doing it? Who's doing it? I mean, this man's a schizophrenic, isn't he? I mean, I mean, who is talking to who? I, 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 well, of course, you have to understand. You have to understand the Hebrew uh, 
um, mentality. Heart is spirit. That's the, the center. Kidneys and liver, I'm putting it, I mean, that's exactly what it says in Hebrew, because it says it more nicely in the authorized version. Um, uh, that's the soul. Now, it, it's, it's your spirit that even in the Old Testament, the spirit of the saint was saying to his soul, be still. Now that is spiritual government. His spirit was saying to the I've quietened my soul like a weaned child. I've hushed it to sleep. I've brought it into quietness, into stillness. Have you ever noticed Mary's marvelous exclamation of praise in what we call the Magnificat? My soul doth magnify the Lord. Oh, you say they were, they were, you're wrong, you see. I, you say, my soul doth, my spirit hath rejoiced. Oh, now wait. It began in her spirit and came through her soul. Her spirit rejoiced and then her soul. That's the right way. Have you ever noticed in worship that when it begins with the soul and ends with the soul, there's something dirty? You, no, I'm not joking. You feel it. At least I do. You feel somehow something, something not quite clean about the worship. It's all right. The words are right and so on. But it's the soul. It be, it's originated in the soul. But when it, is, when it begins in the spirit, when the spirit of the Lord stirs up our spirit and we rejoice in the Lord, then our soul, it comes out in our soul in song. How else do you sing? I mean, oh, I just your physical tongue. But have you ever noticed that sometimes we sing sort of? you know this way and other times we sing with feeling when the, when the spirit it started with the spirit then the soul is employed and the whole being praises the Lord do you understand what I'm trying to say now this division how does it come about through the word of the Lord Oh, there are so many things amongst believers, aren't there, in this whole matter. I, don't, I cannot think of any matter where there's more delusion, more deception, more unrest, more trouble, in more counterfeit, more falsehood, more error than in the realm of the soul in Christian work. So few Servants of God, so few children of God are prepared for the Lord to deal with our soul and divide between soul and spirit. But I must go on, otherwise we'll never get anywhere. Um, I must talk about uh, uh, the work of being conformed to the image of Christ. And discipling. Now, no one, listen carefully to me, no one can reach the throne and reign with Christ who's not conformed to his image. <coughs> the Father will not allow anyone to come to that throne who does not bear the likeness of the Lord Jesus. We have to be conformed to his image in order to reign with him. Now we make a tremendous discovery. But do you remember those two, those two parables? Uh, the ones that he spoke privately to his disciples. 
He said, a certain man found a treasure in a field and he hid it. And he went and uh, bought the field. And he said, as another man, he found a pearl of great price. And he went away and sold all that he had and bought that one pearl. Now, some people have interpreted these parables, we have wonderful hymns, um, as being uh, the, our discovering the Lord Jesus. You know the lovely hymn we sometimes sing, I found the pearl of greatest price? Oh, who can tell his worth? But actually, I think this parable is a picture of the Lord Jesus giving everything he has to obtain the treasure that is his bride. It is the Lord Jesus, in one sense, selling all that he had that he might obtain the bride. Isn't it interesting, this trio? We have treasure, and he buys the whole field to get it. We have pearl, and he sells everything he has in order to get the pearl. And then we have a quite different parable, a dragnet. And in this dragnet, every kind of thing is fished in jellyfish and bottles. And well, if it was today, it would be plastic bags. And I don't know what else, all bought in the net. And then they sit down and they fish it all out. They put the good fish in vessels and all the rubbish they throw away. But think. There's all the world of difference, isn't there, between fish, even good fish, and treasure. And good fish and pearl. Does that mean that all the Lord Jesus is interested is in getting good fish? Netting good fish for the kingdom of God? Let me just say it to you again, I said it to you yesterday morning, well, do you want to be a good fish? Or do you want to be the treasure he is looking for? Do you want to be just good fish? Saved by his grace, born of his spirit, but not the pearl that means everything to him? Think, you have an eternity one day. Do you want to just be a good fish for all eternity? Or do you want to be the bride? Do you want to be the city of God? That city of God, that bride, are made out of treasure, gold and precious stone and pearl. Only three materials. None other. Only three materials. So now we make a great discovery that actually, Actually, in one sense, that old hymn we sing is right. Because I have no pearl in me. I have no treasure in me, and nor do you. Naturally, however much we may uh, know the Bible, however, even if we're saved, we, we really in ourselves, we have no treasure in us, have we? We have no pearl. Who is the treasure in you? And who is the treasure in me? Isn't it the Lord Jesus? 
Isn't this a picture of the excellencies and beauties of the nature and character of the Lord Jesus? Now we make yet another discovery that is stunning. If you and I want to become that treasure, it is all of grace. It is given to us in the Lord Jesus, but, but, listen to me. It is all of grace. It is God's free gift, but it will cost you everything. It will cost you your self-life. It requires a life laid down or my self-life will effectively stop any treasure from ever being worked in me. My self-life will see that any grit in me remains grit. But if I lay down my self-life, the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit will put coat after coat, after coat, round the quit until it becomes a pearl. Now, I, I mustn't stay too long on this, but I just want to get it over to you. You can't be a disciple to the kingdom of heaven if you don't have treasure. Here, Every scribe that is made a disciple to the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out from his treasure things both new and old. Gold, precious stone, pearl. The gold, Jesus said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire that thou mayest become rich. Or I think of the words of the prophet Isaiah, I will give to thee the riches of hidden places and treasures of the darkness. This gold has to be fired This precious stone is produced with great pressure in dark places, with great heat. Now, my dear friends, that's the second thing about uh, being discipled. And here's the third. I want to talk about the disciple. Listen carefully. You'll be a little shocked. The disciple and the devil. Did you hear? I want to talk about the disciple and the devil. The devil and being discipled. Oh, you say, the devil has nothing to do with being discipled. Oh, my dear friend, he certainly does. C.T. Studd once said, he could never understand Satan because he was God's greatest servant. Which, which was a way of saying God always uses the devil to do sometimes his choicest work. 
How does he get that treasure in you? I tell you how he uses the very works of the evil one. He uses darkness. He uses the fires of persecution. He uses difficulties and problems within your own life and circumstance and nature. So you have three things here in the first trio of parable. You have tares, you have the birds of the heaven, and you have leaven. God uses Satan in all these three ways. Tares. I wish that I really had time to be able fully to deal with such a subject as this because it is an extraordinary one. This is not the church. This is the world. Think for a moment about tares and wheat growing together unto harvest. You say, no, 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 no. The only way the Lord can perfect good wheat is to put it in a little plot all on its own, far away from any works of the enemy, far away from the sons of evil. No, not at all. Now let me try to explain if you're, you're still alive enough at this hour uh, to take it in. Do you know that the Apostle Paul, listen, wrote his greatest letters with the greatest revelation when he was nearest to the tares? Do you know what he calls himself in Ephesians? The prisoner of the Lord but he he was actually from one point of view a prisoner of Rome but he says no I don't look at the tears I look at the Lord the tears are all around me I feel their roots <laughs> they're all intertwined with mine but I am an ambassador in chains do you know what that meant? While he was actually dictating the letter, he had a chain to a Roman guard. A tear. Wheat and tear. Let me give you another example. Now, these are dramatic examples. I'm not suggesting that you're going to have uh, necessarily these. I know some of our brothers here have had this experience. But I think of John on the Isle of Patmos. Tears and wheat. All around him, brutality. All around him, godlessness. All around him, hopelessness. And there, right in the midst of it, in a place that was a concentration camp where they were working prisoners to death, he had the greatest revelations that summed up the whole 65 books of the Bible. Tears and we Do you know he was so affected by the hopelessness of the situation and the godlessness of it that he was looking in the wrong direction? 
and he heard a voice behind him. And turning, he saw the Lord. Tears and weep. Now, dear child of God, I want to ask you a question. Do you mean to tell me that you can't put up with the much smaller tears in your life? Some of you are working with bosses that are tears. Some of you have got employees that are tears. Some of you have got a husband that's a tear. And some of you have got a wife that's a tear. Some of you have children that sadly are tears. Some of you have parents that are tears. All of us have relatives that are tears. <laughs> They're not born of God. They don't care for the things of God and they don't want the things of God. But they're intertwined with us. And we say, oh Lord, tear up this tear. Tear it up, Lord. It's destroying me. And the Lord says, not at all. Not at all. It's making you. This is the relationship of the work of the devil. To discipling. God uses the devil who sowed these tears. We say, Lord, root the whole thing up. Get it done with, Lord. I can't serve you until the whole thing's taken up. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Let them grow together unto harvest. I wish I could, as I say, spend longer on this subject because it's a tremendous subject and there's so much in the Word of God about it. I hear Christians who tell me that we are out of this world, we have nothing to do with this world, and I think of these things like being subject to the higher uh, uh, authorities and powers, subject to every ordinance of man, and some of these things are quite dark. He was talking about a Roman Empire. He was talking about godless magistrates, godless kings and, and lords. And he was telling them, be subject to these things. It's our attitude to the tears around us. We mustn't touch the evil one, but we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. For some reason, God allows the tears and the wheat to grow together. His sun shines on them, and his rain comes on both of them, his dew comes on both of them. And no amount of trying to get rid of them will do you any good. Then can I just quickly uh, talk about the birds of the heavens and leaven. Now this is where I've had my biggest problem. I must tell you on this Matthew 13. Uh, it seems to me, and this is again my only my personal view and my interpretation, that the mustard seed has to have something to do with evil because the Lord gives that interpretation at the end of the first of the trio. And therefore it seems to me that both the leaven, the tares, the mustard tree and, and the leaven have to have something to do with evil. But then I have to tell you that with the mustard seed, it is the smallest of all seeds. This is absolutely true. But it grows to a tree sometimes as high as 14, 15 feet. 
Now, just because I haven't seen birds nesting in it does not mean that they don't. But I do know something about birds, and there's something about the mustard tree that would make it a peculiarly acrobatic feat to build a nest in it. It is a pendulous tree that hangs down. You hardly ever see birds even sitting in, in, the, in the mustard tree. Therefore, I make a discovery. I find that here is the life of God beginning with something very, very small planted by the sower that grows up into a tree and then into the tree come things that don't belong to it. They nest in it. They nest in it. And I immediately think, when I think about this, of Ephesians chapter 2 and, uh, and verse 2, which reads like this. Wherein ye once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience. Oh, how terrible that into something that is of God, something produced by the life of God, something that is an expression of the life of God, there should be a walking according to the course of this world. There should be some work of the prince of the powers of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience. That he should get in. My dear friends, let me tell you this. You only have to study the history of the church to see this again and again and again. That which God has really brought to birth. That which is really developed by the grace and power of God. Then into it comes the ways of this world. Then into it comes the influence of the prince of the powers of this air. Then for the first time that whole work begins to think like the world. Thinks and act like the world. Acts. There are things nesting in that tree that have no business to be there. Now, the parable of the leaven is quite different. It is much easier to frighten birds out of a tree than to get leaven out of flour. Once leaven is in the flour, you can't get it out. But if birds get into the tree, you can frighten them off. Get a cat. <laughs> you can do all kinds of things. It's not so hard to get rid of birds in a tree. My goodness me, they're very nervous creatures, birds. You can get rid of them in, an, in a flash. But leaven, leaven, when leaven gets in to the flour, there's no way. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, <clears throat> A little leaven, leaven of the whole lump. Purge, therefore, purge out, therefore, the old lump. He doesn't say, get rid of the leaven. He knows you can't. Get rid of the whole lump. You have to start again. Now, my dear friends, this is why I always say in every work of God, when leaven gets into it at the beginning, there's no hope. This doesn't mean the Lord forsakes, by the way. He still has precious children in such a thing. And he goes on with them. But as far as the building work of his kingdom goes, it's over. 
Now, dear friends, discipling has a lot to do with how we get rid of the birds of the air, of the heavens, that get into a tree that shouldn't be there. Discipling also has a lot to do with the way that we react to leaven. I can only give you one scripture because of time, but I'll give you that one scripture because I think in another, uh, using another illustration, it is Paul's marvelous way of speaking about this. Here it is, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and uh, it is from verse 19. Now I'm going to read. How be it the firm foundation of God standeth sure. Now he's talking about a gangrene. Interestingly, just like 11 of these two men that's eating, he says, like a gangrene into the whole body. Then he says this, Howbeit the firm foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there were not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some unto honour, some unto dishonour. If a man dealt... We apologise to the listener, but the end of side two is missing from the master tape.